This episode contains content that may not be suitable for all listeners. From Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin Gateway, Montana, this is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. This week, we're joined by author and journalist Joshua Prager. Joshua's latest book, The Family Row, an American Story, chronicles the family behind Roe v. Wade, the historic Supreme Court decision that is being challenged today. In the book, Joshua details the family behind the pseudonym of Roe. It's Wednesday, February 23rd, 2022, and this is News Nerds. Journalist and author Joshua Prager has spent the past decade writing The Family Row, an American story. The book is about the family behind Roe versus Wade, the historic Supreme Court decision. And now he joins us on via Zoom. Uh, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So the book is mainly about um, issues that pertain to women's rights and um you know, you wrote this as a man who really doesn't have to deal with these issues. Why did you choose to write about this topic in particular and devote 10 years of your life to it? Yeah, it's a good question. So when I started it, I had no idea that I would be diving into a book. I was thinking about writing an article. And the article um, was what came to my mind was that Norma McCorby, who was Jane Roe, had gotten pregnant um, and then she had sued for the right to have an abortion and she had won that suit. But what I realized after reading an article was that the case was decided too late for her to have the abortion because of course the, case, the gestation of a case is longer than the gestation of a baby. And so I realized, hey, somewhere there is a child that I then came to see that the pro-life side referred to as the Roe baby. And I wanted to find her. No one knew who she was. I wasn't going to out her. I wasn't going to write her about against her um, um, desires. I wasn't going to even notify her that she was the person if she didn't already know. But I wanted to find out who she was, and I did, and I reached out to her mother, the woman who had raised her. But when I then reached out to her, um, and she didn't want to speak at first, she then decided that she did want to. It was so interesting. My, my curiosity was piqued, and I then reached out to the other children Norma had given birth to, given up. And that led me to writing about Norma, to writing about Roe v. Wade, and to writing about the whole of abortion in America. So I know only when I was already a few years in it did I then realize, hey, I'm a man writing about an issue that really, as you say, pertains first and foremost to women. And I did my best throughout the book to sort of address that fact. Just for example, I write about how there you have the Supreme Court, nine men, looking down at Sarah Weddington, the woman who defended, uh, who represented Norma when she's arguing the Supreme Court, or the American Medical Association was all men for many years when they were saying whether abortion could ever be legal, therapeutic, they called it or not. And I'll just finish by saying there was one woman, Katha Pollack, who I quote in the book, a feminist writer, and she talks about how men, when they write about abortion, they often do so sort of figuratively. Um, abortion is seen as a symbol, whereas women write about it, and she uses this phrase, and, it, and it's, they try to give it its, a bloody realism. And my book is definitely um, approaches this as something not figurative or symbolic, but real. And I tried to examine it um, 
um, through sort of, I guess, uh, a woman's eye um, the entire 10 years I worked on it. So the book uh, starts uh, not with Norma, but generations back into her family. Um, what did her family, who uh, they were, uh, they were, they lived in the South. What did they think about abortion, and how was it talked about in the household? So you're right. Um, I start the book not with Norma, but with her grandmother and even her great grandmother. Grandma, I wanted to show where Norma came from. What was fascinating was I found out that Norma Jane Rowe was the third consecutive generation in her family, the third straight generation where there was a woman who had an unwanted pregnancy when she was 17 years old, and what that happened, what that does to her, and what it did to a family. And in this family, just like in America at large, sex and religion are often seen as completely irreconcilable. So Norma's grandmother um, is a Catholic woman turned Pentecostal. Um, and you say, what did they speak about abortion in the home? Well, this was a home where you couldn't even speak about a pregnancy in front of children. It was so taboo, anything that had anything at all to do with sex. And of course, abortion was forbidden by the Catholic Church. And also, even had they been able to sort of address it, they couldn't afford it. It was expensive often, even long before it was legal, women were having abortions, but it was still expensive and dangerous. Um, and then Norma's mother is a Pentecostal turned Jehovah's Witness, and abortion is a completely forbidden thing. She remembered uh, Norma when she was little, peddling copies of this book. I think it was um, The Watchtower and you know, one of the great thou shalt not was abortion. Abortion was a complete no-no. Her grandmother uh, had uh, eight children in 16 years. So pregnancies were not being ended in this family. How did Norma grow up in, in the South and eventually when she moved? Um, she, goes from, she goes from Louisiana to Texas, right next okay. to it. Um, Louisiana to Texas. She is born sort of in this religious family. She um, is a child who, right around um, the age of 12, a little younger than you, I think, um, she um, becomes what is called a delinquent child. She's sent to a school for, quote unquote, delinquent children. She doesn't go to school. Um, she also comes out of the closet. She is beaten for that by her mother. Um, she's, she then renounces God. She gets married when she's 16 years old to a man, um, and they quickly get divorced. And then what? Then she falls into this very deep, sad, um, difficult period. She um, uh, uh, turns to drugs. She's selling drugs. She's taking drugs. She is a prostitute for a time. And even though almost all of her partners are women, she has sex with three men. And these three men, she gets pregnant all three times. And she gives the first two children, she relinquishes those children to adoption. And when she's pregnant the third time, that is when she becomes Jane Roe. She gets pregnant in 1969, and she becomes the plaintiff in 1970. So you talk about the mix of religions that, that were present in Norma's life. How did religion affect Norma's life, and how did she view it? Well... Religion, she had a complicated relationship with religion. It was probably the single great, greatest influence in her life. Um, and 
she, one of that, one of the sort of um, ramifications of that is she felt great guilt about abortion, great guilt about being Jane Roe, but it also brought her comfort. And um, when the pro-choice side really sort of marginalizes her and doesn't really have room for someone who doesn't speak their language, um, is of a different class than most of the leaders, she converts. She becomes a born-again Christian and then switches over to the pro-life side. And it is, she first is evangelical, then Catholic. And it is true that part of the reason she switches is because she's furious at the pro-choice side, and part of it is financial. She knows that she'll be able to make money speaking to half of the country that she hasn't been speaking to before. But a big part of it also was that religion genuinely comforted her, and particularly Catholicism. And so she had a complicated relationship with it. Norma was gay, and the gay community must have looked a lot different back in the 60s and 70s when she was working as a bartender and spending lots of her time in gay bars. What did the community look like back then? Yeah, you're right. It was literally dangerous, dangerous to be out um, and gay where she was living um, in Texas uh, in the 19 late 1950s, 60s. Um, as I say, she was beaten by her mother um, for being gay. And her one of her best friends, her roommate, Andy, who I found, um, talked about friends she knew who were rounded up by the police into paddy wagons when gay bars were raided. Um, gay sex was illegal at the time. So it was a very difficult um, and it was a very brave thing to do what Norma did, which was to sort of be out and to be very open about her homosexuality. It then just sort of is all the more sad in a sense that when she converted and became pro-life, the cost of their conversion was this, that side of the aisle demanded that she renounce her homosexuality. And that had devastating effects for her. So then this really the story of Norma McCorvey is such a detailed and kind of layered one. And it, it's kind of, it seems amazing to me that she became uh, a figure. She was the name behind Roe in Roe versus Wade. How did she come to be that that figure and sue Dallas County attorney Henry Wade? was a crazy turn of events. Basically what happened was she was desperate to have an abortion and she couldn't afford to go where abortion was legal. It was legal in California at the time. Governor Ronald Reagan had signed into effect the most liberal um, abortion laws in the country at that point in 1967. Um, uh, she couldn't afford it and she, her doctor wouldn't perform one. And so finally she goes back to the adoption attorney the man, a man named Henry McCluskey, who had brokered the adoptions of her two first children. And she confides in him and says, I wish that I could have an abortion. He says, you know what? I happen to have gone to law school with a woman named Linda Coffey, who right now is looking for a plaintiff to sue Texas, to, to fight the abortion laws in Texas. And I can introduce you, he says. I don't know if it'll lead to you being able to have an abortion, but I'll connect you. He connects her to Linda Coffey, and then Linda Coffey teams with Sarah Weddington, and they rename her Jane Roe, and, and they file suit. It seems um, kind of interesting that 
she was renamed under uh, another name, Jane Roe. And you've said that this doesn't happen very often in Supreme Court cases. Why did they allow this to happen? Yeah, you're right. It's actually not even allowed, except with very rare um, exception. And it's because of the stigma that surrounds abortion. The other instances where pseudonyms were used also had to do in various ways with sex. Um, and so they said, because she would be so stigmatized if she was known by her real name, um, we will allow you to use um, a pseudonym here. And you know they couldn't guarantee that pseudonym. And the interest that she would remain anonymous, I should say, what ends up happening is she actually decides three years later, the case is filed in March, um, 1970, the case is decided January 1973, she decides then that she will actually tell people her name. She gives an interview with the Baptist Press, um, but no one really knew who she was at all until the late 1980s. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, and as, as the name suggests, the book name, The Family Row, and you've talked about this before, uh, uh, you, you um, tracked down Norma's children and eventually talked to Norma. She died in 2017, but uh, she still plays. She's still the central figure in this book. How did you find these children, and did were they really, you know, were, how did they agree to this? It's a good question. Um, well, I mentioned that I had my sort of first idea was to write about the unknown Roe baby. No one knew any of Norma's children. I didn't even know how many she'd had, but um, I wanted to first sort of find her. And I, I first tried to find the adoption attorney. He had actually tragically been murdered back in 1973. His sister had his records, but she wasn't there. I, I had a various false leads. And then finally, um, when I went to, Norma didn't want to speak to me then. She later did. I spent hundreds of hours with her. Um, but I found Norma's longtime partner, a woman named Connie Gonzalez. Norma had left her. Um, and... Um, she was, she'd had a stroke, it was sad, and she was living in Texas um, in, in real poverty. Her house was soon to be foreclosed. And when I went back to visit her a second time, she said, by the way, I'm about to have to leave this house. As I mentioned, the house was being foreclosed on. And oh, by the way, Norma left her private papers in the garage. We're going to throw them out. And I said, wait, can I have those papers? That's unbelievable. And she said, yeah, yeah, you can have them. We don't want them. And I'd been looking for about a year at that point for the Roe baby. And then one piece of paper out of these thousands of pieces of papers, it had the date of birth of Shelley Lynn Thornton was the name of the youngest. And um, Norma had mentioned the date of birth in an interview she gave once to a Catholic newsletter. And that led me to find Shelley. Um, Shelley did not wish to speak at first, but um, I said, no problem. As I mentioned earlier, I will never write about you against your wishes, but I went to go look for the other daughters. And I mean, it was very difficult to find them. It was another year. I found one through a manager at a Walmart, another one through her ex-husband. And when I finally then, um, they were both very eager to, to talk. The eldest one, Melissa, was the only of the three who really knew her mom, um, her birth mother, I should say. She was desperate to tell the story. The second one, Jennifer, had no idea who her birth mother was. And when I told her, she actually hadn't even heard of Roe v. Wade. But she was so relieved to find out who her mother was and who some of her siblings were. It answered a lot of questions for her. For example, she was gay. And she wondered always if her mother was gay. It turned out that both of her biological parents were gay. 
um, were, were not straight. One of them was bisexual, their father. And once the two sisters, Jennifer and Melissa, were aboard, I then checked back with Shelley. And then she said, I want to participate because I want to also come together with my sisters. And so it took a few years till they were aboard. They met for the first time in 2013. And then I continued writing the book for, for eight more years. So there's this story um, that concerns the Roe baby and uh, Norma McCorvey. This is how Norma approached Shelley Linthorne or the Roe baby. And it really wasn't the most pleasant way of connecting with her. Tell me this story. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Norma rarely did things the pleasant way. Um, and you're correct. Shelley had found out who she'd been born to. That had been my hunch, that she would know somehow. And what had happened was, when Shelley was just shy of turning 19 years old, this was 1989, Norma um, had, that was when she suddenly became famous, Norma, in the late 1980s. And a large part of that was Gloria Allred, a sort of celebrity feminist lawyer, took her under her wing, brought her to Hollywood, got her on TV, and it was clearly, Gloria, who said to Shelley, uh, excuse me, who said to Norma, hey, why don't we try to find your youngest child? And they then turned to the National Enquirer, a tabloid, which hired an adoption investigator, um, a woman named Toby Hanft, to go find the child. And Norma told her the date of birth. Toby finds her. And Toby literally jumps out of a car in a parking lot near where poor Shelley lives, says, your birth mother sent me to find you. She doesn't say at that first moment that she's sent by the National Enquirer. Shelley is initially excited. She'd always wondered who her birth mother was. And then when she goes out to dinner with her mother and Toby and the um, other person working on the story for the National Enquirer, and they say, we're writing this story, we're going to write it whether you like it or not, um, Shelley is, is very depressed. What ends up happening is a lawyer helps Shelley prevail upon the publication to not use her name. But for the rest of her life, until she decided to speak with me, she was desperately afraid that she was going to be outed. She felt she had this enormous secret. Um, and so one thing that my book enabled her to do was to rid herself of this secret and to be unburdened of it. And that was one of the reasons I think she decided to speak with me. So what did the three children of Norma think about abortion uh, because if Norma had gotten the abortion that she seeked, the Roe baby wouldn't exist. You're right. And they were aware, the daughters were aware of that, um, of that fact. And yet all three of them were in their own ways pro-choice. We didn't speak about it a lot. Shelley in particular was wary of being sort of used by either side. Um, but they all three do believe in legal abortion, but only up to an early point in the pregnancy. Um, they're, they're uncomfortable about it. They couch that support for legal abortion in all sorts of um, conditions, saying things like, you know, it should never be used as birth control, et cetera. But all three of them do um, feel that abortion ought to be legal. And the eldest feels quite strongly. She had actually thought about working at Planned Parenthood, but didn't do so because she was afraid that as the daughter of Jane Roe, that would complicate her life enormously. So Norma couldn't be trusted sometimes, and she's known for making these lies up, these stories up, sometimes really 
blowing up the truth and um and it, it seems kind of weird that she did this what was her motivation to lie so much yeah writing about a person who's a pathological liar is a very complicated thing because you have to know well when do i when do i believe them um and the two books she wrote um or you know had ghostwritten for her one when she was pro-choice one when she was pro-life are basically you know just complete fictions and when you ask why did she lie it's a great question and when i finally came to understand the answer, it enabled me in large part to figure out the truth. So I'll first say that the way I was able to figure out the truth, I had her private papers. I found literally, I interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people, including reliable witnesses to every sort of stage of her life. Um, and then I would go back to normal with these sort of facts and names and dates and she would elaborate on them. We would get, for example, and, and a lot of things she forgot. Um, we, we said, you know, well, where did you go to school? She wouldn't quite remember and she helped me. Um, I had her sign a letter that I then sent to the Department of Education in Texas, where they gave to me her files. Little by little over the course of these years, I was able to sort of get the facts. But as to why she lied, she over and over and over again, remember, she was from a religious home and sex was forbidden and sinful and you know illicit and all these things. And over and over and over again, she was reimagining herself in these lies as not a sinner, but a victim. So for example, when she was in Catholic school and she had um, consensual sex with a young woman who was about to become a nun, she writes that she was raped. Um, and similarly, she had written that the row, um, that the pregnancy that led to Roe was also the product of a rape, which just wasn't. Or to give another example, um, um, she, she writes about how um, her husband beat her horribly and that's why she got divorced when in fact um, they got divorced in part because um, uh, he was sleeping with other women um, when she wanted to get um, um, there was a shooting in her home and she told everyone that she was shot at because uh, she was Jane Roe the truth was that she was dealing drugs um, and that's why there was a shooting so over and over and over again and when I understood why she was lying that helped me a lot to sort of get at the truth You'd think that the person behind Roe versus Wade would have a set opinion and be pro-choice on abortion, but Norma's opinions on abortion has changed over the span of her life. And can you tell me kind of evolution of her opinions and what yeah. she thinks, what she thought uh, towards the end of her life? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's one of the sort of fascinating things about the book because. You're right. If you if you go by what she said, her opinion evolved radically. Um, she went from you know feeling very strongly about having an abortion, um, you know, being able to have an abortion when she was then sort of working with the pro-choice. She basically just towed the party line and said exactly what you say. What Roe is that abortion ought to be legal through the end of until viability, the end of the second trimester, etc. Then she goes to the other side and she says when she's working with Operation Rescue. Abortion needs to always be illegal, and then, you know, from the point of conception, et cetera. Well, in fact, she actually did have a set opinion, and what she really believed was not changing and was not evolving. And I know this because when, when push came to shove, she really said what she felt. So, for example, the first interview she ever gave 
was days after Roe. She spoke to the Baptist press, as I mentioned, in 1973. She'd never given an interview before. Hardly anyone read that. And she said that she, that thinking back on it, because a few years had passed since the filing of the case, she felt that abortion ought to be legal, but only till the end of the first trimester. After that, she said, I'd feel uncomfortable. I wouldn't know if I was killing a human being. Then, when she later, um, 1995, so 22 years later, when she then switches to the other side, even when she then is now pro-life and representing Operation Rescue, the most extreme of the extreme sort of flank of the pro-life side, she goes to speak to Ted Koppel on Nightline, and she says that exact thing. She says, I think abortion ought to be legal through the first trimester. Now, this infuriates the people she works with, and she then quickly gets in line. But then, again, at the very end of her life, just like you asked, she's saying the exact same thing to me. Um, I you know, was speaking with her and meeting with her when she was in the hospital, and she spoke very clearly and very passionately about her belief that abortion ought to be legal through the first trimester. So she actually did have... Um, a clear thought of what should be. In a sense, you know, right now, we actually have all these laws coming up. Of course, Roe is threatened. Um, my, my guess is that Roe is not going to be um, simply um, um, circumscribed and that there will be a new dividing line as terms of when abortion is legal to. My guess is that Roe is actually going to be overturned um, with this case based on what the Supreme Court justices said during the oral arguments in Dobbs, but um, maybe it will actually, the, the, the case out of Mississippi that is challenging Roe, that um, says that abortion ought to be legal until roughly 15 weeks. And, you know, if that were to come to be, that would be in line with what Norma thought. I can say, of course, if Roe is overturned, it's going to go back to the states and um, the country will be roughly divided in half, where you'll have half of the country saying it ought to be legal, half not. But until when it should be legal will vary from state to state. Um, and I'll just point out one thing, I know it's a long answer, but there are other countries, of course, like in Western Europe, where abortion is legal until, um, you know, the cutoff is a much earlier cutoff than it is here in the United States. But you know what? It's not fair, like the pro-life say, oh, look, even in, you know, liberal France, they're more, they're more conservative on abortion than we are, or we're more radical than they are. Because until the point that abortion is legal in France, even though it's at an earlier point in the pregnancy, the state does, the country does everything it can to help the woman have, a, have an abortion. It's free. It's available everywhere. There aren't all of these endless sort of um, obstacles thrown in the way where you need consent and you need to go back more than once, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not really a fair comparison. Joshua, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, it's a pleasure to speak with you. And um, um, I look forward to seeing um, all the things that you're going to be doing in the future. That was journalist and author Joshua Prager, his newest book is The Family Row, an American Story. It goes into detail about the family behind Roe versus Wade and their views on abortion.
that's it for this week's episode of News Nerds. You can find us on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com. There you can listen to past episodes of News Nerds, Cow Pies, and other News Nerds extras. You can also listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. While you're there, please subscribe to the podcast. While you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Another way to listen is by listening every other week on Thursdays at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time on KJVM Community Radio for the Gallatin Valley. If you are not in the Gallatin Valley area, go to KJVM's website, kgvm.org, to listen on their live stream. So you know those times when you're listening to something like a song where you cannot figure out what they're saying because the singer is singing so fast and to a, such a strange tempo that you cannot really, you know, discern what they're saying. Well, sometimes, uh, do, do you ever, uh, you know, make up your own lyrics that fit to what you're hearing? Well, I was listening to this song that came on um, by BTS, who is a, you know, a group that is all the rage now, uh, and their their song, Smooth Like Butter, came on. And uh, there's this lyric. It actually is high like the moon, rock with me. You know, I thought that it was hot like the moon, racked with meat. And of course, that makes absolutely no sense and is kind of disgusting. The picture to picture the moon racked with slabs of meat. But, you know, what can I say? That's what it sounded like. Listen to the song if you want to find out. Mm-hmm.